3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is the 10th of August at 7am. You're joined here by me, Genevieve, Evie, Fong and Carnegie. How is everyone this morning? Good morning. 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 We have a full house this morning, which <laughs> Very is exciting. exciting. Yeah. No, I'm feeling here. pretty good, all yeah. things considered. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Yeah. yeah it's a nice catch-up with friends in a sterile environment. Yeah. <laughs> this is my daily, weekly social interaction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, has anyone been up to anything interesting on lockdown? I find that question sometimes offensive. It's like, <laughs> what have you been doing? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, no, no I, hobbies this time around. Yeah, I feel like maybe lockdown last year, everyone had plans to, mm. you know, be creative, stay active. Learn um, K-pop dances. Learn, learn K-pop <laughs> dances, use like, what was that app? House Party or something. Oh my <laughs> God, yeah. You know, and now this time yeah. it's like, over like it. not yet, like <laughs> nah, just muscle just through it. Yeah, getting bed. through the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have been watching a lot of television, um, <laughs> a lot of TV shows. I was talking to Carnegie before the show about The White Lotus, which is on binge. It which, is so addictive. Which yeah, ever, so it's so addictive. I've, like, seen people talk about it, but I actually haven't looked into it, so I don't know what it's about. Oh, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I'm too scared to ask, but also, like, I've just been watching the worst possible shows. So. <laughs> yeah, it, this one's actually, I think the quality is really high. It kind of, like, talks a lot about wealth, okay. uh, especially, mm. like, white wealth mm-hmm. um is it like a succession sort of deal or I, I don't know i haven't seen succession of her that's really good though yeah okay but it's all it's all in this like hawaiian resort mm. and these families and newly wedded couple and then this single woman <laughs> who's hilarious She's the highlight for me. yeah um all kind of find themselves uh in this hotel and things start to get really hectic okay. i think maybe we're all just nostalgic for hotels <laughs> yeah it, it actually makes you not kind of it's yeah. it's not doesn't make you nostalgic. it doesn't like, make you want to yeah it's like and it's a there's a lot of good um race commentary mm. um and it's there's really interesting like intergenerational dynamics in yeah. it as well mm. Um, I, I haven't really seen a show like it, to be honest. Neither. I can't compare it to much. I think it really reflects now, like okay. today, okay. quite well, mm. especially there's this duo, the, the two college students, yeah. and they have quite a, um, I guess, woke rapport with each other, but <laughs> ultimately are quite like privileged and like go to yeah. college. But they, <laughs> there's this scene where they're, on the beach and one of them's reading like Sigmund Freud and the yeah. other one's reading like Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's really good. Yeah. Um, all right. We should probably talk about what's coming up on the show 
today. We have a very exciting interview, I think, Carnegie. Yeah, so we're going to start with an interview uh, with Georgia Mack, who is the lead singer and guitarist of uh, one of my favourite local bands, Camp Cope. Um, Georgia has also been a nurse during the pandemic and has been giving everyone the vaccine and has been really vocal about why that's important. Um, so we'll be speaking to her at 7.30. Um, and then after that, we're going to hear from um, the amazing Deanna Van Buren, who who gave a, um, a TED Talk in 2018 um, where she... Um, asks or invites us to imagine a world without prisons um, and and talks us through the the possibilities of architecture and how we can use that um, uh, in terms of like restorative justice as opposed to punitive justice which is really which is really cool yeah and I'm going to be speaking to Lyndall Rollins, who's a journalist based in NAM. Um, she is a climate. She reports a lot on climate litigation. Um, she has an upcoming podcast called Damages, uh, which we'll be talking about um, climate litigation. But she's also going to talk to us about the IPCC report from the UN about the current state of climate change and what we can do to stop it. Uh, it's quite a controversial report. You might see some things about it in the news today. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting conversation. And she's also going to talk about an upcoming court case involving bushfire survivors suing the New South Wales EPA for failing to protect them from climate change. Oh, that sounds um, great. Yeah, that's going to be so good. Um, and then to finish off the show, um, we're going to listen to part two of the roundtable event Um involving a group of young climate feminists. We listened to part one last week and I think, um, yeah, I think it will be a really good bookend um, for today's show, especially after your interview, Evie, with, with Lyndall. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Awesome. All right, well, we'll go do some news headlines after this announcement. You're tuned in to 3CR. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. All right, jumping into the news headlines, um, I think briefly stating the obvious, Melbourne, uh, metropolitan Melbourne, is now the only area in lockdown. Regional Victoria got out of lockdown last night. Something. Can't help but be a bit jealous, I know. but <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Well, our time will come, but <laughs> yeah. So they're out of lockdown. Uh, we're still in lockdown until Friday, but awaiting, I guess. Yeah, to see if that will be extended. Uh, I think this morning or last night, uh, Daniel Andrews basically said we're going to wait until there's zero community cases that are not in isolation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there might there might be some cases, but they would be like family contacts and isolation, yeah. and that's okay. okay um, I, I don't think it's possible to do otherwise. But um, yeah. yeah, hopefully that's within the next week or two. Considering that you know we went into lockdown pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, speaking of COVID, (laughs) (laughs) um, just looking at this SBS news report, um, uh, the school Al-Taqwa College in Treganina, which has been, I guess, the centre of, um, an outbreak, uh, say that they've been receiving abusive messages online after one of their teachers tested positive for COVID, um, online racial abuse, which I think, I mean, mm. the school is already having to manage a lot. I yeah. feel like it's, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. Yeah. It's sort of. It's just another thing on top of it, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, yeah, they say that they've been targeted um, by by people who are um, not only spreading hate um, but also misinformation, which is, mm. yeah, which I guess is another layer to that as well. Yeah, and I was having a look online and almost the identical exact thing happened in 2020 to mm. them. Mm. Um, really? And it's, yeah, and it's just the same thing. It's like even last year... Daniel Andrews um, kind of was like, stop this yeah. abuse online. It's ridiculous. And now it's just happening, happening again. Yeah. Which is- he made a really, I watched the press conference a couple of days ago and he made a really conscious effort to say that Al-Taqwa has been one of the uh, few schools that have um, cooperated uh, absolutely incredibly and done ev- all the right things and have done nothing wrong and like really tried to like drill that into mm. the press. Mm. They've actually managed the out- the outbreak there and the subsequent sort of spreading to the Fleming Towers so well. Mm. Um, they've had um, – they – um, suggested and have now started a pilot program for vaccinating students on site at wow. the school. Um, and in the Flemington Towers, um, there were a couple of positive cases there from Al-Taqwa. Um, for the last few months, they've actually had rolling clinics to vaccinate everyone. Everyone there has been eligible. They have had a very, compared to last year when there was a lot of controversy about them being locked down immediately by the police, um, there has been an, a much... I think it almost absent of police this time mm, yeah. and it's mostly healthcare workers and community workers making sure they're all protected, have appropriate gear. Um, when there have been cases there, they've been moved and isolated separately so also their other um, community members aren't affected too um, and have been given so many resources that it's it's nice to see a lesson learned from the mistakes made yeah, last absolutely. year. I think, though, it's just part of, like, I mean, it's nothing new, this racial yeah. abuse. We've seen this in the media, you know, when whenever it's um, a, a white person um, or a white area that, you know, is at the centre of an outbreak, we don't really hear much about who they are, yeah. you know, but then as soon as, um, you know, it, it, it involves non-white people, you know, to black women across the border you know what I mean like yeah, suddenly exactly. their docs their names are out there yeah um their identities and are, are made known and it's and, all about the person rather than the structural yeah, yeah. And it's all yeah. about their own fault somehow it's it's yeah. on them mm. yeah uh, yeah it's one of those things we keep coming back to where as much as like sometimes you hear the initial report and sometimes like there's that little thing in your brain that's like why were they there why were they doing that and I think about all the things I was doing during the pandemic, Um, you know, 
I go to the shops. Yeah. <laughs> I've had to, you know, commute in every possible way. Essential workers have had to commute in every possible way. And pretty much every single time there has been an individual case, they were just doing, like, yeah. everything yeah. according to the rules. So yeah. that flashes through my mind as well in terms of, God forbid, if I ever had oh God. COVID <laughs> and they had to trace my steps oh God. and they get broadcasted out to the whole country, I'd just Nobody judge what bars I go to. Please. I know. <laughs> Just be like went to <laughs> a billion places. Yeah. What was she doing going to three Kmart's? Well. <laughs> yeah. So um, other news this week: um, the ongoing um, fires in Greece and California. Um, there has been some pretty crazy footage coming out of Greece especially um this is just more of what we'll be seeing in the next few years a, a lot of that footage really looked quite similar to things I was seeing in Australia during yeah, our big bushfires especially the one in northern California it's kind of it's been named the Dixie fire but it's the second largest the state has ever recorded yeah. in history um and has completely destroyed one of the uh, main historic towns in the area and um Thousands of people obviously have had to evacuate the area. Um, it's very apocalyptic scenes that we're seeing. Very. Um, all right. I wanted to discuss this uh, news headline um, about uh, Brian Houston. Hmm. Um, somebody popped this up on – I just had a quick look at it. It's yeah. really interesting. Isn't it? Um yeah. I was fuming last night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk a bit about it? I don't know a whole lot. Uh, yeah. No. Um, so Brian Houston was charged with uh, historical offences of um, concealing um, child sexual abuse by his father. Mm-hmm. Um He's maintained that other people knew of the abuse before he did, and when he found out, he confronted his father and reported it to the church. I'm sure we'll find out, you know, in court what that happens to be. Um, the interesting thing about this case is that he was allowed to leave for Mexico um, for a pilgrimage before the charges were laid. Um, oh, it's... This is one of those scenarios where, like, I've seen people who have subsequently been charged for, um, you know, certain crimes after they leave the country. It's hard to know in this circumstance whether it is a deliberate letting him leave or whether it's just DFAT just mm. completely dropping the ball yeah. and letting it happen despite a police investigation. Also Scott Morrison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I find particularly interesting is... Um, so in 2019, Scott Morrison put uh, Brian Houston's name forward to attend the White House dinner, the state dinner, That's right. with um, President Trump, and the request was knocked back, and in later he spoke with 2GB saying, you know, Brian is very well known, and Hillsong is so big in the US that uh, he, he's... Uh, was at the White House a few months after me, and at that time, Mr. Houston was a police investigation was active against him. So draw from that what you will. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the fact that there was a police investigation active against him and he was allowed to leave the country, I think that shows the failure of quite a few institutions there. Yeah, and in recent times we've learned that Scott Morrison has some interesting friends. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. All right, moving on to um, a Cartesian in Olympics hockey. Yeah, uh, so I thought it was really interesting. So just for a small bit of background on the caste system in India, which is actually super complicated and mm. would need several shows, but as an extremely short uh, kind of background, there is a caste system in India that kind of is extremely prevalent in every facet of society where the lower castes don't get enough or get any really opportunity to progress and sport is one of the only ways that uh, they do get to be out in the world and um, you know have any semblance of opportunity to change their circumstances uh, and and progress in the world and hockey is one of it hockey used to be India's national sport until 2016 I think wow I until didn't know that. yeah until the country decided to not have a national sport for some reason mm. I'm not sure why uh, but yeah in the we did all right in the Olympics this year for the first time. India's pretty chuffed about that. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of criticism about the casteism um, being extremely shameful and there's been a lot of racist abuse of one of the hockey team members' family saying uh, it was damaging to the country's quest to boost its sporting image. Uh, and this player has been absolutely abused from all various parts of Indian society, um, saying that she's from a lower caste Dalit community. And yeah, it's in a similar vein to what I think we've been talking about with athletes of color in America and here and elsewhere, where, uh, you know, when they're doing well, we're more than happy to celebrate them. And then as soon as the team loses, we see headlines like, oh, the black players were at fault. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see that with Adam Goods and we see that so many examples around the world. And this is kind of a similar thing with caste in India where um, everybody was more than happy when the team was doing well and it's like the caste was kind of put to the side. And then as soon as this didn't do well, uh, it was, you know, caste is slow as being hurled at the players. Um, mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the caste is front and center they went from being the daughters of india to oh we lost because we have lower caste players mm. yeah. so i just yeah i find that to be an interesting parallel to what we've been mm. kind of talking about on the show yeah i think a lot of people would in australia would assume you know just from a very binary point of view that this kind of racism doesn't happen in countries that are predominantly non-white so mm. it's always i think like the the complexities of it needs to be understood mm. by everyone, and you know to to see it play out on the you know on the major world sporting stage yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to mention, in line with talking about the Olympics as well. Um, obviously, Tokyo Olympics ended a few days, couple of days ago. It was a closing ceremony, empty crowds, very eerie to be honest. Mm. Um, but just some stuff I've seen floating around online, on the news, not really that much reported, but there's been a few people talking about it is, I guess, how problematic, not just these games were, but in terms of the games in general. general yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously there was a huge 
response from the Japanese uh, public that they didn't want the games. There was a very strong resistance to the games, I think not just for COVID, just for reasons um, other than COVID as well. And I think it's a trend that we've seen in other Olympic games of you know, people not wanting the games and it's kind of seen as more of a burden. And um, I think it definitely uh, something that you see a lot of is, you know, clearing uh, poor regions to make way for these like stadiums and like um, kind of, uh, I know specifically for Japan, there was a lot of problems with the homeless community in Japan, which um, absolutely a lot of people uh, use the area um, that the Olympics was situated in as kind of their refuge as to um, uh, meet up with other people. And pretty much they were told to like get out and get mm. out of sight. Like no, do not interact with reporters, do not come back here. And a lot of them were issued fines. And I'm seeing um, also in terms of, you know, we've got Paris next Olympics. Yeah. So when Brisbane put in their bid, um, they – ended up being the only country, but there were other countries, including America, they, Mm. LA put in a bid. So one of the, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a groundswell of people who are, you know, opposing the Olympics in general. Mm. And there was a big movement from LA because the people who were involved in the organizing committee were all tied to like very dubious organized crime, Mm. um, Lots of, you know, potential for homeless people in L.A. to be cleared out from uh, potential venues. Lots of, you know, again, dubious connections to construction and that Mm. sort of thing. The funny thing about the, um, like, abolishing the Olympics movement is that a lot of people are Olympics tragics, including myself. Yeah. Like, you love the principle of, like, you know, the, the, you know, four yearly sporting event, but there's just so much pain and trouble and just money involved in the IOC that mm. it's unconscionable. I think, um, yeah, oh, no, I was just going to say, talking about Brisbane 2032, if anyone is interested, um, uh, Jacob from Monday Breakfast interviewed um, uh, Jonathan Shree, um, who's counsellor for the Gabble Ward, um, at the end of July to talk about this very issue. And they mm. <clears throat> Jonathan, Jonathan talks us through... Um, how much things would cost, what would, um, yeah, I guess um, the future of um, housing but also like the destruction of, you know, the climate and stuff to to put on this event. So Mm. if anyone's interested, um, listen back to that interview because it's, it's, yeah, very enlightening. Yeah, that would would mm. be very interesting because I think as as far as I'm aware, especially in regards to the um, LA getting the Olympics – um, it was actually put to New York was going to get it. And then there was another country, but they actually had like kind of a referendum and the public voted no, but they didn't have that referendum in LA. It was kind of more of a executive yeah. decision. It, um, it, it, it was a lot of like groundswell pressure and then they ended up dropping the bid, but it was not like they were set to refuse even public opinion about it. Yeah. But yeah, it is interesting. It's like, it's one of those things where you can see the cultural change happen before your eyes and even like, um, yeah. you know, non-activist people have realised the impact it has on their Definitely. communities. I think particularly with these games. Um, All right, so I can we'll go to a quick announcement. We'll be back with a track, but keep it locked to 3CR. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. (coughs) There are only five reasons to leave home. 
shopping for food and supplies that you need, exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible, care and caregiving, authorised work or education if you can't do it from home, getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors, and if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. All right, you're on Tuesday breakfast uh, on 3CR Community Radio. The time is 7.24. I'm going to play a track from one of my favourite artists out of uh, Dallas, Texas, um, she goes by Liv, and that's L-I-V dot E, but it's pronounced Liv. Um, she now resides in Los Angeles, but uh, very influenced by R&B, soul, jazz, um, and gospel. She gives me very Erica Badu vibes, but she just put out a new album uh, titled CW double T Y plus. Sorry, that's a, bit, that's a mouthful. Um, and it does mark the one year anniversary of her other debut critically acclaimed album. Couldn't wait to tell you, um, which is also great, but we're going to play a song off the new album. Uh, it's titled underscore 21. Ain't no thing 
That was live with underscore 21. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to hear from uh, Deanna Van Buren. So what could our world look like without prisons? Well, in her 2018 TED Talk, activist, architect and co-founder of Designing Justice and Designing Spaces, Deanna Van Buren um, talks us through the transform- transformative power sorry, of architecture and invites us to imagine a future without prisons. A lot of people call me a justice architect, but I don't design prisons. I don't design jails. I don't design detention centers, and I don't even design courthouses. All the same, I get a call every week saying, "Okay, but you design better prisons, right? You know, like those pretty ones they're building in Europe. And I always pause. And I invite them, and I invite you today, to imagine a world without prisons. What does that justice feel and look like? What do we need to build to get there? I'd like to show you some ideas today of things that we're building. I'm going to start with an early prototype. This I built when I was five. I call it the healing hut. And I built it after I got sent home from school for punching this kid in the face because he called me the N-word, Okay, He deserved it. It happened a lot, though, because my family had desegregated a white community in rural Virginia. And I was really scared. I was afraid. I was angry. And so I would run into the forest, and I would build these little huts. They were made out of twigs and leaves and blankets I'd taken from my mom. And as the light would stream into my refuge, I would feel at peace. Despite my efforts to comfort myself, I still left my community as soon as I could, and I went to architecture school, and then into a professional career designing shopping centers, homes for the wealthy, and office buildings. Until I stepped into a prison for the first time. It was the Chester State Correctional Institution in Pennsylvania, and my friend, she invited me there to work with some of her incarcerated students and teach them about the positive power of design. The irony is so obvious, right? As I approach this concrete building, these tiny little windows, barbed wire, high walls, observation towers, and on the inside, these cold, hard spaces, little lighter air, the guards are screaming, the doors are clanking, there's a wall of cells filled with so many black and brown bodies. And I realized that what I was seeing was the end result of our racist policies that had caused mass incarceration. But as an architect, what I was seeing was how a prison is the worst building type we could have created to address the harm that we're doing to one another. I thought, could, could I design an alternative to this other than building a prettier prison? It didn't feel good to me. It still doesn't feel good. But back then, I just didn't know what to do. What do we build instead of this? And then I heard about restorative justice. I felt at peace again, right? Because here was an alternative system that since when a crime is committed, it is a breach of relationship. 
that the needs of those who have been harmed must be addressed first, that those who have committed the offense have an obligation to make amends. And what they are are really intense dialogues where all stakeholders come together to find a way to repair the breach. Early data shows that restorative justice builds empathy, that it reduces violent reoffending by up to 75 percent, that it eases PTSD in survivors of the most severe violence. And because of these reasons, we see prosecutors and judges and district attorneys starting to divert cases out of court and into restorative justice so that some people never touch the system altogether. And so I thought, well, damn, why aren't we designing for this system? Instead of building prisons, we should be building spaces to amplify restorative justice. And so I started in schools because suspensions and expulsions have been fueling the pathway to prison for decades. And many school districts, probably some of your own, are turning to restorative justice as an alternative. So my first project, I just turned this dirty little storage room into a peacemaking room for a program in a high school in my hometown of Oakland. And after we were done, the director said that the circle she was holding in this space were more powerful in bringing the community together after fighting in school and gun violence in the community, and that students and teachers started to come here just because they saw it as a space of refuge. So what was happening is that the space was amplifying the effects of the process. Okay, then I did something that architects always do, y'all. I was like, I'm going to build something massive now, right? I'm going to build the world's first restorative justice center all by myself. And it's going to be a beautiful figure on the skyline, like a beacon in the night. Thousands of people will come here instead of going to court. I will single-handedly end mass incarceration and win lots of design awards. <laughs> and then I check myself. Because here's the deal. We are incarcerating more of our citizens per capita than any country in the world, and the fastest-growing population there are black women. 95 percent of all these folks are coming home, and most of them are survivors of severe sexual, physical and emotional abuse. They have literally been on both sides of the harm. So I thought, ooh, maybe I should ask them what we should build instead of prisons. So I returned with a restorative justice expert, and we started to run the country's first design studios with incarcerated men and women around the intersection of restorative justice and design. And it was transformative for me. I saw all these people behind walls in a totally different way. These were souls deeply committed to their personal transformation and being accountable. They were creative. They were visionary. Danny is one of those souls. He's been incarcerated at San Quentin for 27 years for taking a life at the age of 21. From the very beginning, he's been focused on being accountable for that act and doing his best to make amends from behind bars. He brought that work into a design for a community center for reconciliation and wellness. It was a beautiful design, right? So it's this green campus filled with these circular structures for victim and offender dialogue. 
And when he presented the project to me, he started crying. He said, "After being in the brutality of San Quentin for so long, we don't think reconciliation will happen." This design is for a place that fulfills the promise of restorative justice, and it feels closer now. I know for a fact that just the visualization of spaces for restorative justice and healing are transformative. I've seen it in our workshops over and over again, but I think we know that just visualizing these spaces is not enough. We have to build them, and so I started to look for justice innovators. They are not easy to find, but I found one. I found the Center for Court Innovation. They were bringing Native American peacemaking practices into a non-Native community for the very first time in the United States. And I approached them and I said, "Okay, well, as you set up your process, could I work with the community to design a peacemaking center?" And they said yes. Thank God, because I had no backup to these guys. And so, in the near west side of Syracuse, New York, we started to run design workshops with the community to both locate and re-envision an old drug house to be a peacemaking center. The near west side peacemaking project is complete, and they are already running over 80 circles a year with a very interesting outcome. And that it is the space itself that's convincing people to engage in peacemaking for the very first time in their lives. Isabel and her daughter are some of those community members, and they had been referred to peacemaking to heal their relationship after a history of family abuse, sexual abuse, and other issues that they've been having in their own family in the community. And you know, Isabel didn't want to do peacemaking. She's like, "Well, this is just like going to court. What is this peacemaking stuff?" But when she showed up, she was stressed. She was anxious. But when she got in, she kind of looked around, and she settled in, and she turned to the coordinator and said, "I feel comfortable here, at ease. It's homey." Isabel and her daughter made a decision that day to engage and complete the peacemaking process, and today their relationship is transformed. They're doing really well in their healing. So after this project, I didn't go into a thing where I'm going to make a huge peacemaking center. I did want to have peacemaking centers in every community, but then a new idea emerged. I was doing a workshop in Santa Rita Jail in California, and one of our incarcerated designers, Doug, said, "Yeah, you know, repairing the harm, getting back on my feet, healing, really important." But the reality is, Diana, when I get home, I don't have anywhere to go. I have no job. Who's going to hire me? I'm just going to end back here. And you know what? He's right, because 60 to 75 percent of those returning to their communities will be unemployed a year after their release. We also know if you can't meet your basic economic needs, you're going to commit crime. Any of us would do that. So instead of building prisons. What we could build are spaces for job training and entrepreneurship. These are spaces for what we call restorative economics. So, located in East Oakland, California, Restore Oakland will be the country's first center for restorative justice and restorative economics. So, 
So here's what we're going to do: we're going to gut this building and we're going to turn it into three things. First, a restaurant called Colors that will break the racial divide in the restaurant industry by training low-wage restaurant workers to get living-wage jobs in fine dining. It does not matter if you have a criminal record or not. On the second floor, we have bright, open, airy spaces to support a constellation of activist organizations to amplify their cry of healthcare not handcuffs and housing is a human right. And third, the county's first dedicated space for restorative justice. Filled with nature, color, texture, and spaces of refuge to support the dialogues here. This project breaks ground in just two months, and we have plans to replicate it in Washington D.C., Detroit, New York, and New Orleans. So you've seen two things we can build instead of prisons, and look, and the price point is better. For one jail, we can build 30 restorative justice centers. That is a better use of your tax dollars. So I want to build all of these, but building buildings is a really heavy lift. It takes time. And what was happening in the communities that I was serving is we were losing people every week to gun violence and mass incarceration. We needed to serve more people and faster, and keep them out of the system. And a new idea emerged from the community, one that was a lot lighter on its feet. Instead of building prisons, we could build villages on wheels. It's called the Pop-Up Resource Village, and it brings an entire constellation of resources to isolated communities in the Greater San Francisco area, including mobile medical, social services, and pop-up shops. And so, what we're doing now is we're building this. Whole village with the community, starting with transforming municipal buses into classrooms on wheels that bring GED and high school education across turf lines. We will serve thousands of more students with this. We're creating mobile spaces of refuge for women released from jail in the middle of the night at their most vulnerable. Next summer, the village will launch, and it pops up every single week, expanding to more and more communities as it goes. So look out for it. So what do we build instead of prisons? We've looked at three things: peacemaking centers, centers for restorative justice and restorative economics, and pop-up villages. But I'm telling you, I have a list a mile long. This is customized housing for youth transitioning out of foster care. These are reentry centers for women to reunite with their children. These are spaces for survivors of violence. These are spaces that address the root causes of mass incarceration, and not a single one of them is a jail or a prison. Activist, philosopher, writer Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public. So, with this in mind, I ask you one more time to imagine a world without prisons, and join me in creating all the things that we could build instead. Thank you. That was Deanna Van Buren speaking in 2018 about how our society. 
<clears throat> can make the shift from a punitive justice system to a restorative justice system using architecture. If you would like to find out more about Deanna's work, you can go to www.designingjustice.org. All right, well, next up, uh, we will be speaking with Georgia Mack, who is a lead singer and guitarist of NAM-based band Camp Cope. Uh, she is also a nurse, and while the pandemic has made it difficult for the band to record or tour, uh, Georgia has been working on the front lines um, at vaccination centres. Uh, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Georgia. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> uh, what has it been like for you in the pandemic, uh, working on the front lines and vaccinating people? Um, it's been amazing. Like, I like I miss playing music and stuff, but I really wanted to meet the moment. And because I had the skill and the qualification, I was like, like I, I need to do nursing right now. Like, it was like this calling. And... Yeah, so I got I got another qualification. I did like a, a course in like vaccination, and so now I'm a nurse vaccinator. And yeah, I love it. I, it really feels like I'm doing like grassroots, like on the ground work, like vaccinating one person at a time, just chipping away, chipping away at it. Yeah, exactly. And you've been really vocal on your Instagram and it feels like you're super passionate about it. And I think that's impacting a lot of people, especially, you know, young people that love the band and love your music. You know, why do you think it's important to be that voice? Um, because, of, like, I just, I don't understand, like, the anti-vax rhetoric. Like, I just don't understand it because worst-case scenario is, like, someone like dies and there's a much bigger chance of someone dying from COVID than there is from, you know, getting the vaccine. And I just, yeah, I'm very much like, I just want to keep people alive and healthy. And I'm, yeah, I'm very passionate about that. And yeah, I hope that like people have, I don't know, like educated being educated, educated themselves on how incredible vaccines are, and it's the reason why we don't have polio anymore. And you know, it just it seems it, it blows my mind that people like it's like this is our way, this is our one way out. Yeah, and it must. Like, and this is the best shot that we've got of getting you know, you know, being able to like go to shows again and you know enjoy life a bit more and not go into lockdown like the biggest most important thing we can do is get vaccinated because it you know prevents the spread which means less people will die which i love which i just yeah i don't understand the anti-vax part because it's like are you pro the play like, <laughs> right now would you be like yeah, like it, it, it blows it blows my mind. Blows Do you mind. encounter um, a lot of people who don't understand the seriousness, perhaps, of coronavirus? Because, like, I think that's part of the thing. Like in Australia, like we've actually, like you know, people have died, and it's been, you know, uh, it's been terrible when it's being concentrated in particular places. But I think I think part of it is like a lot of people just don't understand or really acknowledge how bad it's been in other countries. And perhaps don't yeah. see the urgency. So we've been very lucky that Australia is this isolated 
island because in other parts of the world that definitely hasn't been the case. Like, like I've got a friend whose family is in India and her family members are dying of coronavirus and they're screaming out for a vaccine and yet some people turning their noses up at it. Like, it, it blows my it blows my mind. It's so, incredibly privileged. It, yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's incredibly privileged to not have seen the worst of it and to not live in, like, high-risk accommodation where you're, you know, around a lot of people and, you know, it could, you know, coronavirus could spread more easily. Like, yeah. It's very sobering. Yeah, and it must be so frustrating for you working on the front lines in the sector and then seeing what's happening, people actively campaigning against the vaccine. Oh, yeah. So at one of our sites, we've had, like, an anti-vaxxer guy come and, like, harass staff and put it on his Instagram. Wow. And, like and I was through his Instagram, he's got, like, 22,000 followers. I'm just like, what? <laughs> How? Wow, that that's yeah, that's that's a lot. Part, yeah, but for the most part, it's been like amazing because people who come to, you know, into the clinics want to be vaccinated, and it's it's really hard having like because we've had you know the categories one A one B like you know people who are eligible to be vaccinated. It's not just everyone like it how it has been in a couple of countries. Like it's really hard sending people away when, like, young people are so willing to get the vaccine. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, well, we can't give it to you because you're not in these categories. And it's, like, oh, frustrating. But we've got to, you know, we've got to follow the guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And additionally, for you as a musician, the pandemic would also be frustrating because you can't tour, you can't do the main thing that gives musicians their revenue. What What's that been like for you? Um, I kind of got over being sad about it pretty quick because I, you know, occupied my time with nursing. And But I understand that that's not the case for a lot of people. So maybe I'm not, like, the best person to ask. But, you know, like, it sucks. It sucks to see my friends who are, like, incredible musicians who live off, you know, touring to now have no money and, you know, have a really, have their income really impacted by it. Like, it's it's horrible. And, yeah, vaccination is the best way out of this. We can get back to going to shows and, you know, not having, like, super spreader events. Yeah, exactly. The vaccine is the only way out. Um, and as you said on your last post um, on Instagram... AstraZeneca is now available to everyone over 18 at nine state-run government centres and you can book in via hot dog. So if anyone wants to do that, get onto it. We all need to be vaccinated. Um, AstraZeneca, it's just gotten... The only bad thing is that it's gotten a lot of bad press, but it's an amazing vaccine. I didn't have Pfizer. I had AstraZeneca. I would go back and change it. It's an incredible vaccine that I'm really grateful to have in my body right now. So, yeah. If you're eligible, just, like, go get it. A good vaccine is one that's in your arm. We don't, like, you know, I don't know. People are all worrying about the brands, but, like, we don't really worry about what brand of, like, medication we're being given or brand of flu vaccine we get every year. 
Yeah, it, see, it, I'm yeah. really glad that you mentioned it because how do I talk to people who, like, you know, friends of mine, even relatives of mine who are doing the whole dance of, you know, waiting for one vaccine or another? Um, some, like, some of them live in outbreak areas and they're like, you know, uh, oh, if it, comes, if it comes closer to me, then I'll, then I'll consider it. And, um, you know, they've got bookings in October for Pfizer and it's just like yeah. I don't understand why you're waiting the whole point of a vaccine is that so you can be protected before it gets to you hmm. I know I don't understand that way of thinking because like as soon as it was made available to me which was so I was in the first one percent of Australians to be vaccinated as yeah as soon as it was made available to me I like I ran to get it because mm. I wanted to see my grandparents without getting scared of killing them you know same <laughs> Um, God, it's it's really hard to talk to people because some people have just completely made up their minds yeah. about it because they've, you know, listened to the media and, you know, AstraZeneca does have, like, less efficacy than Pfizer. But if you, like, you know, if you, you know, 60, 80% is better than 0% by a long shot. Yeah. When it comes to protecting yourself and your community. And yeah, it's like it's like a seatbelt. You know? Yeah. That's you a good still analogy. die in a car crash if you're wearing a seatbelt. Yeah, but exactly. Seatbelt is the best way to stop you from dying in a car crash. Yeah, that's you a know? great analogy. Um yeah. Um you you said that yeah, you got over being sad about your music, but you have written an amazing song with Alice Ivy called Someone Stranger. Did Was that written in the pandemic? Yeah, so that was written in December after we got out of lockdown. And um, the vocals were finished like maybe like three months ago, back when we weren't in, you know, between lockdowns. So I'd like come from work in my scrubs, ready to like do a vocal take. Um. But, yeah, that feels good to have, like, at least made something, you know. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I, I love Alice Ivy. She's so incredible. Absolutely. And it's kind of similar to your pop album, Pleaser, and kind of the pop electronic vibe. Um, mm. What Was the song at all inspired by the pandemic or...? Um, it was kind of just, like, inspired on the spot, like, Alice Ivy, she showed me this track that she'd been working on and I was like, right, this is the vibe that I feel. This is how I'm going to, you know, show the world how I feel about this vibe. I don't think it was inspired by the pandemic, but maybe, I don't know, because, like, the hook is, like, touch my body. And it's like, <laughs> no, 1.5 meters, come on. Yeah. Um so we're going to play that track soon. Uh, and that's, I think, all we have time for today, Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's been great. Anyone who wants um, up-to-date info on vaccines, you can follow Georgia. Her Instagram is at goldsounds with a Z. And um, up next, we have Someone Stranger by Georgia Mack and Alice Ivy. A message from Victoria's community <laughs> sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. 
I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. My way lost in pink haze Moving through space You don't call for days I've gone crazy At least that's what they say I don't care Cause I don't fear change Set the bed on fire Screaming to the sky Wait for your reply Yeah, I've been having a real weird time Plastic in the heat Melting down onto the street Found my way under your sheets Now you've got me thinking Would you put this record on? Would you listen to this song? Would you dance until it's gone? Till it's gone was Georgia Mack and Alice Ivy with Someone Stranger.
So up now, we're going to be talking to Lyndall Rollins, who is a journalist based in Nam. Uh, she was a UN correspondent in New York and received the UN Correspondents Association Prize for Climate Journalism. She'll be reporting on climate litigation for a coming soon podcast called Damages, which is a sister podcast to the popular true crime podcast about climate change, Drilled, which is really fantastic and you should definitely give a listen. Um, she's particularly interested in the health impacts of fossil fuels because she was born in Traralgon, near the biggest open-cut brown coal mine in the Southern Hemisphere. She joins us today to speak about the recently released report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, on the latest physical science on climate change. Uh, this paints a, sta- a stark back- backdrop against the global talks in November. And we're also going to be chatting about an upcoming court case involving bushfire survivors, so the New South Wales EPA for failing to protect them from climate change. Thank you so much, Lyndall, for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so, so much for having me. That's all right. Um, I appreciate that you've had a very limited time to read this report, which is quite (laughs) dense. It's something like how many pages? 136 pages? Yes, they they put it out in different sections. There's the summaries and then the the longer sections. And and also the whole report is coming out in sections. So we actually just received a physical science section, but there's another section that will be coming out next year, which is on mitigation. So um, you'll see a lot of the headlines today are a bit sort of scary because we're looking at, you know, we're getting more concrete data on the physical science, but we don't yet have this section of the report that's coming out next year, which is looking at, you know, what we're doing and what more can be done as well. Yeah, that's right. So I guess a a good place to start is actually talking about what this report is. Uh, As you said, there'll be a lot of scary headlines. I feel like a lot of nihilistic sort of headlines too. And I get it too. Like, you know, I've, I've read some of those summaries and I did feel a bit fearful last night when I was thinking about it. But if you can just like explain what this report is. Yeah, of course. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, it's it's hundreds, um, maybe thousands of scientists that get together and volunteer their time and they put together these synthesis reports. So they put together data that um, all of, from all of the thousands of scientific reports that have been put out and they put it all together and so they're giving us this real sort of snapshot of what's happening. Um, this report is interesting because it gives us more concrete details on the physical science, um, just where sort of, you know, really more concrete information about as well um, the influence that humans are having on our climate and also um, brings together for Australia um, some information such as um, last year the bomb put out that um, Australia has already warmed by um, 1.4 degrees, um, which is in comparison to other parts of the world which have sort of been warming at about 1.1 degrees. Um, so, yeah, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, described the report as um, that it should be the death knell for coal and fossil fuels um, before they destroy our planet. But, of course, in Australia, we're perhaps um, it's a bit hard to sort of imagine that right now with our current political situation. Mm. And, um, that's why I'd love to talk about these court cases as well. Yeah, Um I think that's one thing that Australia suffers from is a lack of imagination of what a world could be like without fossil fuels. I feel like I'm constantly seeing headlines from either fossil fuel companies trying to build more 
um, factories or, or places where they could um, extract fossil fuels or realising that they're not profitable um, and then having to withdraw, but also governments in Australia just constantly approving these sites. And it just feels like, you know, we, we're constantly kicking the can down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Like in Australia, we've seen the federal government describing, you know, a gas-led recovery out of um, COVID, which really doesn't really make sense at all. You know, um, gas is also a fossil fuel and, um, you know, we're still looking at some of these court cases that I'm going to chat about in a moment. You know, they're also challenging new coal mines or expansions of coal projects. So, yeah, we're really sort of going full steam ahead on fossil fuels, despite all of what the scientists have been telling us now for decades. Yeah, and I think the, the the biggest part of this is that it's it seems to be a bipartisan approach um, with both mm-hmm. um, the federal government as well as Labor. And, you know, I, I think the, the biggest thing we can do is to sort of tell them that it's not enough, that they can't keep on, you know, concede, like even especially the, the opposition, that they can't keep on conceding that, that this is the only way forward, that we have, you know, such champions of fossil fuels in um, the opposition, um, that they would keep agreeing to these sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. That really concerns me about, you know, the upcoming federal election as well, that we don't really have a real alternative um, in federal labour. Um, I was living in the US and it was quite interesting to see, you know, these um, progressive candidates running in the Democrat Party and really trying to push the, the party to adopt the Green New Deal. But it seems a bit hard to see that within the Australian Labor Party. So, um, yeah, but <laughs> um, maybe things might change, although um, Labor's having issues with pre-selection and, and all sorts of, um, yeah, issues <laughs> here in Australia. So Yeah, yeah I think it, it has been – it's actually – I'm glad that you mentioned that because it has been interesting to see Labor candidates coming up for pre-selection and being pushed on these specific things. Mm-hmm. It is a community interest, especially young people, you know, we're concerned about our futures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so tell me about these court cases that are coming up. This one particular one that um, you've um, spoken about recently, which is um, a court case involving bushfire survivors. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really interesting one, but it's actually um, quite amazing to see how many um, climate litigation cases are happening in Australia at the moment. Um, They've sort of been going quietly in the background for years, but they're sort of now just starting to um, achieve some different results. And I think one of the reasons why that is just linking it back to the IPCC report is that these scientists have been doing this extremely difficult work to give us this really concrete basis for taking action through these um, through these reports that they're putting out. You know, theoretically, we shouldn't need um, these reports to tell us that you know we could be using um, renewable energies, which are much better for people um, anyway, generally. And you know, we also don't need these reports to tell us that. Um, these bushfires that we saw um, two summers ago were really catastrophic. But um, so that that data that we see from the IPCC report, um, for example, this um, bushfire survivors um, that are suing the New South Wales um, Environment Protection Agency over climate change, um, they they're having um, they're in court this week for three days um, in the Land and Environment Court Court in New South Wales. Um, and they had their first day yesterday, so they had an expert witness 
um, who was the former chief scientist, Penny Sackett, and she was speaking about the, um, you know, drawing on the IPCC data. Um, but also, um, I'm, I, if people want to, they can actually listen into that um, to that court case. They have to send an invitation to the New South Wales EPA, but I think I mean sorry, the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. Um, but I think that um, there'll also be more reporting on it, sort of as it um, hopefully wraps up tomorrow. Um, but well, um, uh, hopefully we'll also get to hear from some of the bushfire survivors as well. Um, but there's. This is one of like many um, cases that are going on in Australia. I think most people would have heard about the um, the Youth versus Environment Minister case, which found that our Environment Minister has a duty of care to young people. And I just find it, I just cannot get my head around the fact that um, that is something that she is actually appealing, that she has a duty of care to young people. Um, and I think that just really sort of shows the sort of moral and ethical situation that we are in where um, we have people in positions of power who really put fossil fuel um, profits ahead of, um, you know, this beautiful, beautiful country that we have this responsibility to look after and that Indigenous people have been looking after for thousands of generations. So, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the like you know the the how how unbelievable it is that someone would possibly push back. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I briefly worked on the um, class action um, that was um, put forward by survivors of the Black Saturday fires, and mm. even though that was not necessarily climate change related, um, just hearing the impact that these oh, yeah. fires had on people and hearing those stories, I don't know, like it's so hard to think about how immediate action doesn't come from those kind of stories. Even just seeing what happened in the fires that happened in 2020, how could you? How can we as a country go through that and not do something that is radically changing our approach? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I just um, came back. I was lucky to get away for a few days and managed to get to Malacuta and seeing the, um, you know, the trees right down to the beach that have been um, burnt um, nearly two years ago now. But also just thinking, you know, driving there, you know, we're driving through just, just to the east of Melbourne, you know, we have um, just to get to Malacuta, you know, these, these um, fossil fuels are not far from the impacts that they're having. Like I think they often talk about these as being global issues, but you have to drive through the... Um, the Latrobe Valley, which has, you know, the biggest brown, open um, brown um, coal mine in the Southern Hemisphere. And then there's also, you know, these are um, some of the biggest native forests in Australia, but they're still being logged even after the, um, you know, we don't even yet know the extent of the damage of the fires. So um, I think there's another court case in Victoria where there's um, Victorians who are suing Vic Forest to try to, you know, halt some of that logging that's still going on and um, so you know there's so many court cases and I'm really excited that I'll get to um, be reporting on these for this new podcast um, damages sorry to do like a little plug no 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 by all means yeah I'm really am just getting started with this podcast but I'm super excited that um, Amy Westervelt who's this investigative journalist from um, from the US um, who has this amazing podcast called Drilled um, is is starting on this new podcast, Damages, which will be looking at climate litigation around the world. So I'll be getting to look at the Australian cases here. But definitely um, before that comes out, because we're still 
just getting started, definitely recommend people listen to Drilled because I think even looking at some of the headlines and the media coverage today of um, of this IPCC report, it can feel really disheartening. But I think one of the things Drilled does is it sort of um, sets out how a lot of that messaging has sort of been set by the fossil fuel public relations strategies. And so it's sort of um, designed to make us feel like we're responsible and really disheartened and there's nothing we can do. But that's actually sort of how they want us to feel because um, maybe eventually we might have some of these court cases actually holding some of these people accountable for what they've done. Um, but um, it's sort of their hope that we'll, we won't realise for as long as possible because they, you know, the, the money that comes from fossil fuels is really, really amazing for a very, very small number of people. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's that lack of imagination that we could, um, especially in Australia where we have so many um, resources for renewable energy, um, you know, that we couldn't be trying something else when we know the, the damages that um, fossil fuels cause, not just, you know, from climate change, but also from pollution and all sorts of other things as well. So, yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I do listen to Drilled as well as the um, oh. one of the sister podcasts, um, Hot Take. That's yeah, a really good one too. Awesome. Um, good too yeah. I, and as you said, like I just feel, I feel a little bit less hopeless or helpless <laughs> when I listen to those and like read about the court cases because you know that people, like you know, th- that there is a way forward um, to hold yeah. people to account, um, and that it's not all just about you know reading statistics in a report and just thinking, well, that's it. And I think it's really important to have that sort of attitude going forward as the you know the details come out from this particular report. Yeah, definitely. And just like quickly just to say, you know, these court cases didn't come from nowhere. You know, these are community groups that have been, you know, working together um, over a really long time to get these up and running. So I think, you know, people are organizing and doing things. It's um, you know, it's been really hard when we're all um, in lockdown and feel separated and that sort of thing. But it's um yeah, if you know, there's, there are things happening and um, people are working really, and the scientists too, you know, that have worked on this IPCC report, people have been working really hard, even though they've often been silenced. So, um, yeah, it's just um, good to see that this is all sort of coming up now with the court cases. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lyndall, for speaking to us today. Um, you can read a bit more of Lyndall's work on her website, uh, which we'll put in the show notes. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And, yeah, have, I'm looking forward also to hearing from the um, feminists um, for climate action and the Young Feminist panel as well that you have on next. So, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Day. Okay, bye. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. So last week we listened to part one of the Young um, Climate Feminist Radical Futures Roundtable and today we go back to part two. I think after listening to Deanna Van Buren, 
imagine a world without prisons and then hearing uh, Lyndall Rowland speak about the fact that we can do something about it and a lot of the information that's out there is actually propaganda from fossil fuel companies and the like. Um, I think it's important that we um, now turn to these young climate feminists who um, imagine a radical feminist world um, and what that looks like. So today we'll be hearing from Maria Alejandra Escalante, Sanam Amin and Patricia Miranda Watamena. We're all working towards dismantling the intersections of all of the systems of oppression. And we were all led to this work for different reasons through different entry points working towards similar worlds, like alternative worlds, something different. What does a radical feminist future look like, feel like for you? So not just getting at the structural aspect of it, um, the systemic aspect of it, but also like, what would this world feel like living in it every day? And also the structural. And I'll pass it on to Maria Alejandra to start us off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love this question. I think the fact that we can imagine radical futures is already a huge richness that we have. The fact that our imaginations haven't been stopped, corrupted, (laughs) is already, I think, a huge feminist contribution to the world. I imagine a, a radical future where we obviously avoid the climate catastrophe, where we have the chance to see that we could have, like, we were able to stop it, that we, we had the means, that we had the will, that there was enough power being worked together to avoid the climate catastrophe. I imagine a radical future where the political and economical structures are not serving the few, but the many, and are not based in a capitalist way, extractive, profit-driven world. I am not sure how to call that, (laughs) but I think it's very important to imagine a world that exists beyond what we understand as capitalism and what we have understood that is needed to run the world, to fill the world, basically. And obviously, I think that is a world of fossil-free where we have understood that energy sovereignty can come into so many other ways, into so many other symbiotic ways with the world. And I like to imagine a world where we are stepping away from this colonial, rational way of putting everything into binaries, into women, men, into nature, society, into all these dichotomies, which I think leave very little room for imagination to bloom. I want to step away from monocrops in general, from all types of of systems that want to streamline, that want to, by efficiency or by, again, profit, want to destroy diversity and and I mean that also in terms of the gender diversity that exists within our many societies and that have been erased, silenced, policed 
and and violated on into so many ways and i minor, i imagine a radical future in which we step away from the fact that we think that there's binaries to contain us our emotions our bodies our expressions our systems and that we really step into this way of observing how nature works that how ecosystems are so entangled, are so complex, are so interdependent. And I like to call these ecologies. No? There's a lot of work, literature, people, organizations, movements doing work around ecologies, black ecologies, indigenous ecologies. I like to see a diverse amount of ecologies in which there's no real need for competition and harm and monocropping. And then lastly, I imagine a radical future that can heal. I think there's deep wounds that so many of us around the world have been carrying due to the colonial violence that our territories, our communities have lived, continue living due to the racism that we see every day due to the utmost violence from governments, fundamentalist governments. And as we've said before in this conversation, I think healing, putting at the center those emotions and real feelings and learning how to heal is to me the most radical thing, knowing that there's a way to heal, that we can really step away from the suffering no? while after transforming it. I would like to see a future that that heals, especially the most marginalized peoples, and a future that can celebrate joy and the existence of humans and non-humans as well. Thank you so much, Maria Alejandra. I want to live in this world like now. <laughs> um, yeah, and what you really were getting at at the beginning, like the importance of healing from colonialism, from capitalism, from all these systems, doing away with our ideas of binaries, man, woman, nature, society. It's hard work to do all of that. It's a lifetime and more. So thank you. And I'll pass it on to Sanam. Thank you, Andrea. And thank you, Maria Alejandra. Every day, there's a little piece of something that I'm doing or a message that I'm putting out that fits into the larger composite of the future that I believe in. If I say, you know, no more, uh, have, a, have a pesticides convention to regulate the harmful pesticides. That's because I'm envisioning a world where we can have agroecology because that really radical feminist future that I like to imagine is the one where we've destroyed the systems of oppression, the patriarchy. The so just playing in the background there, um, that's uh, some Sanam uh, talking about what... Um, they envision in their um, radical feminist future. And before that, we heard from um, Maria Alejandra as well. If you would like to listen to the entire roundtable discussion, um, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Earth Matters. Um, that's where it was aired originally. Um, Earth Matters reports local, national and international environmental issues from grassroots activist perspectives with a strong social justice focus. Um, and they also broadcast every Sunday morning from 11 to 11.30 a.m. All right. That brings us to the end of the show. Pretty jam-packed show. We got to speak to um, a couple of really amazing people. Uh, first up, we um, 
heard uh, Deanna Van Buren um, and her TED Talk um, called Building Justice. And then we had the pleasure of speaking. We had the absolute <laughs> pleasure of speaking with George Mack uh, from Camp Co-op about working on the front lines during the pandemic. And then we spoke to Linda Rollins, um, a journalist from NAM, uh, who covers climate litigation and um, just talking about the IPCC report that came out this week. Uh, really fantastic chat as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, as I said earlier, just then we heard from a group of young climate feminists talking about uh, radical feminist futures. Um, and just before we wrap up, want to flag Census Day... I know it's a drag, um, <laughs> but it is tonight. If you haven't already done it uh, prematurely, I uh, can do it online. Um, but yeah, otherwise, keep it locked to 3CR. Up next, we've got Accent of Women. Um, stay tuned to the rest of the breakfast shows for all of your news headlines. And hope everyone has a lovely day. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.